How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy, and education is needed to make the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment, and our economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry into a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Powered by Pink Petro, and this is the Voices of Energy. Well, good rainy morning from the energy capital of the world. I'm Katie Maynard. Today's topic is ESG. Is it real? And is it real in energy? How have companies and investors approached ESG efforts? We'll look at that. What role will ESG play in the energy industry's future? Why should energy companies prioritize and disclose ESG achievements? I am joined by our panelist, Hillary Holmes, partner and co-chair of the Capital Markets Practice at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, and Dan Pickering, Chief Investment Officer of Pickering Energy Partners. So we'll get started and I'll introduce our panelists and we'll get into the questions. Hillary Holmes is a partner in the Houston office at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. She's co-chair of the firm's Capital Markets Practice Group and a member of the firm's Securities Regulation and Corporate Governance Energy Private Equity and M&A Practice Groups. A lot to say. She's a busy woman. She regularly writes and speaks on topics related to U.S. capital markets, developments in security regulation, ESG, and the state of the energy industry. And she is co-editor of the blog Securities Regulation and Corporate Governance Monitor. She got her law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and her Bachelor of Arts from Duke. She is a native Houstonian who loves to run marathons, take long hikes in Colorado with her husband, and watch Avenger movies for the third or fourth time with her two active young boys and one lovable pug. Dan Pickering is the Chief Investment Officer of Pickering Energy Partners, PEP. His firm manages client assets via energy strategies focused primarily on primary public markets and private equity. Prior to PEP, Mr. Pickering served as the president of Tudor Pickering Holt & Company and the chief investment officer for TPH Investment Management. He has spent 26 years as an energy portfolio manager, researcher, and analyst. He grew up in Missouri, has a BS in petroleum engineering from the Missouri School of Science and Technology, and has an MBA from the University of Chicago. He sits on the board of trustees for Texas Children's and the Texas Children's Hospital Foundation, the advisory board of Midway Companies, and the Houston CFA Society. He likes to travel, he avoids exercise at all costs, watches too much TV, plays golf, and complains about the Houston Texans. Welcome, Dan and Hillary. Thanks. Thank you. So let's get into today's topic. So this is a hot topic. It started with BlackRock's statement in 2018 to CEOs to make sustainability integral to portfolio construction and risk management. Larry Fink, a popular figure in this space, urged the exiting of investments that present a high sustainability-related risk and launching new investment products that screen fossil fuels with a huge focus on increasing sustainability and transparency. Fast forward to today, Amidst the COVID-19 virus just a few days ago, Fink upped his commitment and said that by the end of this year, 100% of its portfolios will integrate ESG metrics. 
That is up from 70% at the end of April. BlackRock will also produce data and analytics that underscore the investment value of taking into account climate change, according to Fink, who pointed to threats posed by natural disasters. Firms are not just putting pressure on environment and governance. Earlier this year, Goldman Sachs' David Solomon made a statement at Davos about the firm's mandate to IPO companies only if they put a woman or person of color on their board. I dissented on that view in calling the move a potential fig leaf. A focus on company culture is very much more of a sustainable approach. And after meeting with David at his suggestion this summer, he didn't disagree. However, he said it is important for firms like his to make a commitment to targets to get results. BlackRock hasn't let up either. A few days ago, Fink committed to increasing the firm's Black workforce by 30% and doubling its Black senior leadership by 2024. We've got a lot to talk about today, so let's get going. Let's go ahead and get a couple of these questions out there. So guys, what started ESG and energy? Is this real, just hype, or what do you see coming from the investment community on how important all aspects of ESG are to the energy industry? Dan, you want to start off? Sure. You know, as I thought about this question, Katie, I mean, I think ESG in some form or fashion has been around for a long time. If you go back to the sort of days of the smokestack industries and people thinking about air quality and getting upset, you had Exxon Valdez in the 90s. But climate change, I think, really sort of kicked in in 97, Kyoto Protocol, again in 09 with Copenhagen and then the Paris Accords in 2015. So this has been building for a number of years. I think we sort of hit this tipping point around ESG, which really, you know, climate being the biggest driver of, of the ESG movement recently. And I think the BlackRock stuff is really an, an outgrowth of the, the public outcry. Greta Thunberg really brought it to the forefront in 2018. Europe's been ahead of us, I think, in general on this, but you now have money, individuals, and, and also, I think, the industry, the energy industry starting to focus on it with, you know, 40 or 50 utilities committing to carbon neutrality by 2040 or 2050. You've got a lot of the European majors that have done the same thing. So I think it's been a groundswell and it's now out there in the public. It's, it's a goal. It's a target. And it's, so I think it's definitely real because we've pushed past this tipping point and companies are, are, are being forced to make statements that they're going to have to live up to. So I, I think it's the real deal and it's the culmination of a lot of stuff over the last, call it 25 years. That's a good point, Dan, about the buildup over the course of the last, I mean, even 20 years. You know, this isn't, it can be deemed a, a bit of a fad or window dressing or, you know, as you said, well said, Katie, um, that one particular initiative potentially being a fig leaf if not used properly. But, you know, this the fundamental principle that might drive a corporation to promote certain ESG initiatives, which, you know, people tend to focus on environmental measures, but we need to remember it's also tied to social related measures and governance related measures. And if you think about that broadly, it's consistent with a corporation's basic purpose in the U.S., at least in U.S. law. So, you know, there's been, as you said, you know, an erosion of trust in the corporation over the last especially decade or so, 
you know, we saw a reformulation of the purpose of the corporation embodied in statements by the Business Roundtable a couple times, the World Economic Forum, as, as you mentioned, BlackRock and other state streets and others, focusing on the importance of practices that support long-term sustainable growth and profitability. But, you know, we have to be careful of is that even though this is a long-term issue, that we don't turn it into a fad. So there's an article in the New York Times just this morning about a study um, of companies that were signatories to the Business Roundtable, the most recent Business Roundtable initiative, and their performance over the last six months as compared to those non-signatories, and noting that they didn't see any improved performance on a relative basis. And they also pointed out that, you know, very few of the 180 companies who signed the statement amended corporate governance guidelines or took the issue to their shareholders or to their boards. So it's important that we come up with concrete measures to actually implement these ESG initiatives and not just jump on the bandwagon. Because if we do that, then the real initiatives that are taken will be viewed with skepticism and we will lose legitimacy. As a reminder, you know, directors of corporations who should be making these kinds of decisions, you know, owe just basic duties of care and to act in the best interest of the corporation in an informed manner. And so their duties don't really extend to other stakeholders per se, as some statements would have you believe. But then the question that draws ESG into the into the scope of what directors will promote for their corporation is whether acting in the best interests of the corporation includes the stakeholderism, these ESG initiatives in an indirect way. So caring for employees, supporting your local community, dealing ethically with suppliers, operating in an environmentally responsible manner. These are all things that for an energy company in particular could enhance and protect corporate value for the benefit of stockholders and the longevity of the corporation. So the question and the answer that uh, ESG is important to all companies in the energy industry will be the same. The answer is yes, but how to implement it will vary for each corporation depending on the circumstances. And I think that that's one mistake that the industry has to be careful not to make in terms of painting ESG with broad strokes across all companies of different sizes and in different situations. This is a great segue into my next question. And this was a question that uh, we had a a lot of folks send in in various forms or fashions. Are energy companies able to afford to make this a priority? I'll say one thing, and then Dan should definitely pick up from there. In my view, ESG is an issue of access to capital. At its core, that's what it is. In the current climate, responsiveness to investor standards is critical to make companies eligible for broad investment. You know, as we know, we've all read the statistics about, you know, increased $45 trillion of assets under management, following global sustainable investment approaches, you know, more private equity funds looking for commitments in sustainably linked lending and green bonds, you know, and sustainable investments this year have exceeded last year already. So, it seems that investors aren't just responding to a a fad or a trend or some sort of societal drumbeat. They're also seeking productivity and efficiency, which theoretically should drive higher margins and longer term profitability. And ESG initiatives can be a way to get there. There's a good quote that State Street uh, put out addressing material ESG issues. 
They said that it's good business practice and a matter of value, not values. So I think that that's the most compelling point is that this is an issue, an issue of access to capital and for the long-term success of the industry and energy companies, consideration needs to be given as to what specific ESG initiatives would best benefit the profitability and efficiency and innovation of each particular company. I think it's now a cost of doing business. And so you're going to have to be able to afford it as an energy company, particularly a public energy company. So times are tough in the oil patch, no doubt. And that is going to probably make it slower to, to make some changes that are going to, I think, be pushed on a, on the industry by peer companies, by potentially by regulation. You know, the court of public opinion is is pretty strong on this right now. So I think it's one of those things like, taxes and safety that folks are just going to have to do. I think the good news is there's some time here. Showing improvement is going to be important. I don't think anybody can go from zero to 100 miles an hour in a year. It's going to take some time, but I think companies are going to have to afford it, and it's just going to be an integral part of what they're spending money on. I really liked what you had to say about uh, values, Hillary. I, you know, there's a very difference, a very big difference between priorities and values. And I think there's the tension of having to ma- manage short-term priorities, but also keeping, you know, values, uh, you know, in the long term. And I'm, I think we're starting to see with these companies a commitment to a diverse workforce, a commitment to safe, reliable operations, a commitment to reduction in, in emissions and flaring. So, I think um, the fact that you brought up values is really important. We need to keep that um, kind of in the forefront, particularly when we're talking about whether we can afford to or not, you know, to make it a priority. So interestingly enough, I'm, I'm curious to know from the two of you, are any companies that you're aware of acquiring businesses to build out port parts of their portfolio or just implementing policies? Or do you see a broad brush, a different a different range of the kinds of investments that companies are making. And to add on to that, you know, you spoke a little bit earlier about um, varying companies and sizes and the like. There's a question here about, you know, independent E&Ps versus, you know, some of the majors. Um, what kinds of things are you seeing energy investors doing uh, that prioritize these investment decisions? And are they Acquiring businesses to build out ports, parts of that portfolio, or are they just putting in policies? Anybody want to take that one? I'll start, and then Hillary can can jump in. I think that for all except the largest companies, we just in recent days seen BP say they're going to reallocate a bunch of money toward the renewable and alternative energy space, and, and they just spent a billion dollars buying windmills. So some companies are buying their way into uh, kind of a greener, lower carbon future. I think for the majority of the industry, I think that the thing that most energy companies are going to have to grapple with is that, you know, an upstream company is a hydrocarbon producer. So the question is, how do you become the best hydrocarbon producer you can be? And so what, what I'm seeing more of, as opposed to acquiring things, is folks starting to implement policies, thinking about, you know, what is their strategy on the ESG front? We hear a lot more about the E. Um, We hear increasingly more about the G. And the S part, I think, is is less visible to us as outsiders. 
I think of S as everything from diversity, inclusion to culture, et cetera. So from an E perspective, I think it's it, the majority of companies are starting to develop their plans and it's going to be a journey here. I think it's a five-year process for most companies to get to where they want to be. I mean, you need. I think companies need to be realistic about this. I think investors are realistic. They're going to look for change and improvement, not immediate, you know, vaulting of the companies from one point to another. So, I think it's primarily, primarily policies and procedures, not acquisitions. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. In some of our M&A activity, we've started to see some discussion around ESG value, and um, but it's it's not driving the decision to consolidate or make a specific acquisition to a large extent. There's a few companies that I'm aware of that have made a deliberate strategic decision to be perceived as more ESG friendly or, you know, and they may already be perceived that way, but that is going to be a core marketing angle for them for the long term. So a few of those I have seen look at specific assets as an opportunity to support that long-term strategy. So that has driven some, at least, attempts at M&A activity in, in, in the recent, I mean, in the last year or two. But, but in the large part, I agree with Dan, it's really a, a policy decision. You know, I mean, the company has to sit down and clearly define its its long-term corporate strategy, its capital needs, of course, in this business, and its investor demands. So once it's clearly defined those three things, then it can look for ways that ESG initiatives will support those strategies, needs, or demands. I don't think that it is the other way around, such that you decide you are going to be an ESG-friendly company and then develop your business plan around that, of course. And, you know, the company, these companies, a lot of these companies, you know, have core, they have their core business, they have their obligation of doing what's best for the long-term sustainability and profitability of the company. Some, like you mentioned, smaller oil and gas companies in particular, you know, I mean, their core goal over the next year is to manage liquidity, maybe consummate some consolidation, provide stockholders with a more sustainable business, and you know, keep their employees, you know, some of whom you know have been laid off at this point, keep the employees they have employed. So they need to think about how to utilize ESG initiatives to access more capital and innovate the business. And some, as you said, as, as Dan was mentioning, the you know, movement into alternative renewable energy for some companies will expand into new business lines even if, as some have acknowledged, they produce lower returns than traditional oil and gas operations. But all, all these companies will want to think about ESG initiatives in terms of innovation and capital management, but also attraction and retention of talent, which will be even more important as the millennials, who are our ages 24 to 39, take the reins in our business. And management will also want to be careful not to pursue ESG initiatives simply for the sake of it or to better their own personal reputations. Um, we have to be careful not to force all energy companies into one box and allow each company to do what's best for its business, its situation, its particular future. And there's just not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach for the industry. What I think is really critical here is that uh, companies are evaluating different types of opportunities in conjunction with how they're exploring sustainable 
profitable growth. Um, some companies will introduce new strategies like, like we just talked about, but some will just work to you know, decarbonize carbon. Their key will be to find a way to continue to power the planet, which we can't do without carbon at this point, um, while still maximizing profits and being responsive and responsible with respect to ESG issues. It's a real tension, but I do think that they it I do think that ESG issues will support continued profitable use of carbon in the near term when used in a real strategic thoughtful way. So let's talk about the the risk side of this, the the risk that this goes away. What's likely to happen on this topic given uh, given the election? you know, if there are changes or no changes, and how have your opinions on the longevity of ESG efforts uh, changed? Dan? Yeah, I think if we, you know, if we change administrations, if you get a Biden presidency, you're you're more likely to see the regulatory side of this topic, you know, become a driver. So the government may start telling companies what they've got to do. I think they'll clearly be a more significant allocation of of money toward uh, alternatives and renewables and focus on climate. So if you're a diehard ESG person, you probably want Biden to win because ESG is going to be a bigger deal going forward. I think it's important, though, that in an environment that we've had over the last couple of years, which is decreasing regulatory scrutiny of, of the sector, that ESG is rising in prominence. And that's happening across many industries in our industry. And you're seeing the industry jump on it a lot because money is jumping on it. People are divesting or people are requiring action. But um, when I say people, people meaning the the dollars, um, investors and capital providers. But at the end of the day, I think regardless of the administration, you've got this push that's happening that isn't going to stop it may get it get may get more government centric with a democratic presidency but it's still going to push ahead i think regardless yeah agreed i mean you know biden took the net zero carbon goals from the green new deal you know modified those to have a target of 2050 and um if that were implemented then you know it could have do two things one is it can make it easier to track and compare CO2 emissions so that companies have some sort of, you know, standardized reporting system, which we can talk about a little bit later. That's, I think, one of the problems we're facing right now. But you could at least have standardized reporting around around the emissions issue, which is just the E of the S and the G, really. But um, that could negatively, the flip side of that is that it could negatively impact a lot of companies' ESG ratings, particularly in our industry, and um, it could call for even more minutiae in the disclosure around different levels of carbon output in terms of product and supply chain and so forth. And so in our industry, that is, would certainly have an adverse impact on ESG scores and profiles. And then that has a negative impact on the ability to access capital for these sustainability-minded investors who use the ESG scores in their investment profiles. So it, it, it could be sort of a double whammy in terms of not just harming the industry's reputation and increasing mistrust, but also, especially with the millennials, but also impairing our ability to access capital. 
Yeah, but I think so, you can also see some other, like on the S front and such. Um, you know, if you if if you have a Biden White House and a you know Democratic Senate, you could start to see diversity and sort of equality legislation make it through finally, like pay gap legislation, programs around childcare, education, fair housing, diversity disclosure, support for certain types of schooling or remote access to schooling, which is, you know, a hot conversation right now, given that we're both home with our kids today in the middle of, you know, the storm and the pandemic. So, you know, it's, um, that could be really interesting because it could have an impact on, you know, the costs that corporations have to bear with respect to those programs, but it could also promote or make more accessible, you know, gender, gender diversity, gender equality within the industry. Um, so I think that's could be a positive in terms of workforce productivity for the industry. Great. No, thanks, Ellery. I appreciate that. And I know, I know before we had this call this morning, we all, we talked about this, you know, the, the E is heavily emphasized, obviously in energy G getting there S you know, there are some questions about sustainability. You know, what are some of the things, what are some immediate things, first of all, can a, can a company do, you know, short and long term? I mean, because this is all over the map and it means so many things to different people, people are in different stages. What are some immediate things a company can do from an E perspective, from an S perspective, and from a G perspective? We're talking about low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I'll comment on one thing. Two, well, two things. One is, Companies have more ESG, some companies who haven't given as much attention to ESG as others, and, you know, maybe rightly so, have more ESG initiatives or have implemented ESG to a level they might not even recognize. There are certain, for publicly traded corporations, there are certain governance requirements and disclosure requirements that already, and and frankly, shareholder advisory firm pressures, that already support a lot of the G and the S. So for example, you know, you get credit for ESG initiatives for things like, you know, providing disclosure about how you think about diversity in, in your boardroom and selecting your directors, which most public companies already disclose, or how you manage conflicts of interest. And so these are all things that are already being done. And so it's important that oil and gas companies slow down and think about what they've already implemented and then make sure that they take credit for it to the extent it will improve their access to capital and their profitability. The other thing is that right after the pandemic hit, there was, and the oil price and the OPEC plus and all the mess of March, there was a lot of discussion about should we just put ESG initiative to the side and just focus on the survival of our corporation, keeping our employees employed, making sure we have a succession plan in place if our directors or management team get sick and so forth. And my response was, well, all of those questions you just asked are part of the ESG conversation. They are ESG initiatives. So give yourself credit for thinking that way. The other thing to do was to start to make lists of things that could be done without really spending any capital. So the G and the S are are usually provide some cheap and readily available options that don't require any capital, don't require a lot of lead time, 
And so I have actually, I don't know if I can hold it up like this, these charts that we've made with different companies. This is actually a sanitized, just generic one that have practical steps for implementing the E and you break them out into low or no cost efforts and then reframing your current efforts. So this is for a company that doesn't want to spend a lot of capital on the E and the types of things they can do, make adjustments to operations to reduce, make a plan for adjustments to current operations to reduce environmental impact and set long-term and realistic goals for their implementation. Also, reframing your current efforts like linking environmentally aware efforts to financial metrics. And a good example of this would be a reduction in in your fresh water usage and an increase in your recycled water. And you can tie that to financial metrics of increased free cash flow, lower cost of capital, and it's all tied back to an environmental issue, but results in a financial benefit. And then you go through the same exercise with the S and the G. So you make two columns of, okay, well, with respect to the socially um, responsible efforts, what could we implement now or what are we already doing? So no cost efforts. And then what can we set up as our initiatives for the longer term? And then again, same with same with the G. So these are just simple exercises that I think a lot of corporations in the height of the crisis didn't realize they were already implementing sort of by necessity in terms of taking care of their workforce or taking care of their thinking about their role in the larger community. And then also realizing that some of the uh, technical innovations they made have positive environmental impacts and they were made simply to increase productivity and profitability but also have the added benefit of have the added benefit of being part of the E initiative. So now it's time to just take credit for all that work over the last six months. So I think you're going to see when the you know annual reports come out next year as companies look back. I wonder if the tone is going to be more focused on socially responsible activities, you know, broadly ESG, not only because of the new SEC mandated disclosures but also because companies will have realized that successful ESG efforts and profitability and sustainability, particularly in the face of a crisis and management of risk, go hand in hand and support each other in a way that a stockholder would support. Katie, I think from, from my perspective, you know, getting started is the most important thing. As Hillary said, some companies are doing things they don't realize you know, they've already started, but on the E side, the easy stuff, and from my perspective, and none of this is easy, by the way, but, you know, flaring is a very obvious thing to focus on, reducing flaring. Measurement of emissions is another one that, you know, doesn't cost a lot of money, that that you can start benchmarking how you're doing and then figure out a way to start fixing things. You know, Kimridge, which is an, an activist investors, just put out a really good sort of what companies can do. Uh, to focus on the E side of the equation. And I'd encourage everybody to take a look at that. It's out there and available. Just search their website. That includes some other things that, you know, down the line, electrifying their their activities, et cetera. I think on the G side of the equation, you know, the issue is is getting getting your goals into your incentive system and your governance system, et cetera. And so you know, I think that's another thing that can be fairly easily implemented is what are you trying to accomplish and are you incentivizing the organization appropriately to, to achieve those? I think the other thing, and this is, I'm a little over my skis on 
the S side of the equation, but the world is right. We're in a, we're in a very strange time right now. And the social justice elements that are at play right now, I think across all industries, companies need to figure out what they stand for and what they're about and communicate that at, at a minimum internally. All of this, you know, all of these efforts, I think you have to communicate internally and communicate externally. And by doing that, you create some accountability. And, you know, it's it's one thing to to stand around and, and talk about, you know, how you feel. It's another to put out your list of stuff. Because once you put that list out there to your to your internal constituents and to your external constituents, you're going to get asked about it. You're going to get held to it. And so if you're thoughtful in creating that list, it sets it, you know, it just sets up a really good kind of process to make sure you're doing what you said you were going to do. So getting started, some easy things on the E side, figuring out your S side, and then making sure the G side is consistent with what you're trying to do. Yeah. And just to build on that, I mean, the ESG programs need to impact the entire organization. You know, they, as, as Dan was saying, they do need to be specific. They need to be strategic and substantive, integrated into the operations. It's not, we have an ESG, you know, a VP of ESG who has a couple people who work for her and runs, you know, our efforts and posts on social media and whatever. It needs to be part of the culture, integrated into the operations but it also needs to be measurable. So I agree with Dan. It's, you know, nice for a corporation to stand up and say, we, you know, stand for these values, but let's, let's measure how you show that you are committed to those values. So, you know, the initiatives and the goals should be directly and if possible, quantitatively tied to performance of the business. And in order to help promote that access to capital, the company needs to work to improve ESG scores, uh, which require as much effort on the governance and social side as the environmental side. They also require disclosure because companies that disclose more about their ESG initiatives tend to have higher scores. And you could ask, you know, chicken and egg question there, but but that's the that's the data. So for an energy company in particular, the ESG program, you know, should be bolstering innovation, promoting growth. Uh, mitigating risk, especially in this current environment, enhancing efficiency, and you know, being used as a tool to retain and attract talent, which will be a new area of disclosure that's encouraged for public companies. And I think it's more important than ever as we sit here today, at this point in September 2020, that the company be substantive and specific. I think that there's a bit of distaste at this point for pure aspirations and thematic goals. I mean, those are fine, but I would expect them to continue to come over increasing scrutiny. I mean, as I mentioned earlier that, you know, just this morning, there's that New York Times article about the study of the performance of the BRT signatory companies. And, you know, there's, there's criticism about, well, is this just a PR stunt? Is this just window dressing? And that criticism isn't just for the corporations. And it's an open question. I'm not saying that it is, but be careful to manage your program in a way such that you're not perceived as only engaging in a PR stunt. And and I think that this is an issue for the companies. It's also an issue for the asset managers and the investors. You know, there's been 
some question of, you know, are the asset managers and investors promoting some of, especially more the E initiatives as critical to their investment strategy as a way to attract the millennial investors who are the future holders of wealth, who are the ones that prioritize environmental and sustainability in their investing strategies. I mean, so do the Gen Xers, but you know, the, the millennials are sort of more the long-term play for those investment groups. So I'm going to put you both on the spot a little bit because I'm getting some pressure here from the audience. And this was in the questions that came, you know, through, we are talking a lot about the E and we're talking a lot about the G really want to, people really want to hear more about the S conversation, tangible things for corporations to implement. I have my own opinion. I'm going to stay out of it until you guys invite me in, but I'm going to let you guys talk about this because this really gets down to the people element, right? The markets don't move without people and, and innovation. The markets don't move without um, workforce, right? The, the world doesn't move without people. So at the center of S is really the P, the people side. Mm-hmm. What are some tangible efforts that, that, that you perhaps you've seen or heard about that folks can implement? And it's interesting. This question is coming from, uh, from what I can tell, oil and gas folks, solar folks, utilities. So this is not a question uh, coming from one area of the industry. It's something that's coming from across industry. Folks are curious about what we need to do around S. I feel incredibly unqualified to answer this question because I work at a small firm. I've worked in small firms for the last 20 years, and it's a heck of a lot easier at a small firm to do it than it is at a big firm. What I will say is that I think that our industry generally, I'll put the hydrocarbon industry at at the top of this list, right? Our diversity and inclusion record is terrible, and it's very difficult. It has been very difficult to improve that, and it's going to get even harder. Why? Because this is not something that our industry is thinking about. It's something that all industries are thinking about. And so we're competing. There's heightened awareness and focus on trying to find good candidates of color, females, et cetera, and everybody's doing it. So we're going to have, we, the industry is going to have to find a way can, will we have to money with people to get them involved? I don't know, but we're going to have to do better so that people actually want to work in our industry. And I actually think, and then I'll stop talking. I think it's going to have to start at the most grassroots level internships, right? I mean, it's got to start all the way at getting people involved very early in their careers and showing them that this is a vibrant interesting, attractive place to be. And that starts very early in the process. We're going to have to try and make lateral hires as well. But at the end of the day, getting people in the door so you can create the culture you want to create is a huge challenge. And I think money is going to be a part of it. I think culture is going to have to be a part of it. I think, you know, organizations within organizations, encouraging is going to have to be a part of it as well. So it's a big challenge. Got to start early and got to get going on it because we've been bad at it. I agree with that. I uh, think that there's a couple, I'll give a broad answer and then real specifics. So my broad answer is that I totally agree with Dan. It has to be a cultural change. Um, I've been banging on that drum for my whole career. And man, I wish it had moved more than it has. Um, And, you know, I know I'm preaching the choir to Katie and Ally here, but 
I think that it's not just at the grassroots level. I totally agree. That's an that's a dead on observation that we have to start to think with a diverse mindset. We have to think about diversity of perspectives, backgrounds, race, gender, everything. An organization is more profitable when it has a more diverse workforce, more diverse leadership. Diversity of perspective is good in our system. So we've got to start with the, you know, the students that get internships, the hiring right out of school, the not, you know, going, not just going to people who look like, you know, look like us kind of issue or going to the same schools over and over again, but thinking more broadly, thinking about different backgrounds and maybe pulling talent, you know, affirmatively making the effort to seek people out and recruit them who wouldn't normally consider our industry. Pitch the opportunity to the, you know, the young student who wants to be in, in uh, you know, more innovative space with, but this is the moment where the oil and gas industry needs to be the most innovative. This is where huge investments are being made in technology. This is, you don't want to go into, you know, computer tech. You want to come and work in the oil and gas industry and tech, because this is where you can really make a difference for the long term on the entire world. So the pitch has got to be better. And then on specific, well, and then I was going to say the other thing is with that, that's at the grassroots. I mean, that's at the sort of the young level, the growing the talent for the long term. And hopefully that helps with the cultural change, because then eventually those people grow up and then run the organization and it's top to bottom. But in the meantime, we do have to think about who we have in the leadership at the top and make sure that our boards of directors are diverse in perspective and background and gender and race and all of the different things that contribute to diversity. And, uh, and also think about, you know, the manage, management teams and everything. And um, again, we've got to think outside the box, maybe pulling talent from other industries, not just recycling the same talent. Um, in terms of specifics, I can tell you a few things I have on my list from some of the worksheets we've done with other companies. One place to start would be to look at the shareholder proposals that are made in the social category to public companies. And that will often be a good either, it's not necessarily that you're going to replicate exactly what the shareholder proposal was, but it can be a good indication of what shareholders and investors are looking for. And you can find something within that proposal or derivative thereof that makes sense for your company. So, you know, um, having, you know, managing or getting involved with, depending on where you are, lobbying and policy initiatives, making sure, depending where your operations are, that you're managing human rights risks, political contributions, setting up initiatives for employment diversity. And um, and this isn't just more affinity groups where people who look like each other sit around the table and talk to each other. I've been parts of those and that's fine, but it's also a setting specific systems in place to actually promote employment diversity rather than just supporting diverse candidates that you get naturally. So that sort of aggressive stance that, that Dan was alluding to. And then taking an honest look at any gender or racial pay gaps and, uh, and ad addressing those head on. Smaller points would be, you know, during the crisis, you know, taking care of your employees, thinking about healthcare, wages, uh, transitions, recognizing that not all of your employees will bear the burden of the remote work situation the same way and making adjustments to ensure that you retain the talent who may 
have a harder time with the remote work situation, either because of family obligations or because of access to technology or so forth, making sure you don't lose that talent that you develop them and they have the same opportunities as others. Making contributions to local communities, so particularly those who, you know, if you're, all your operations are concentrated in a couple counties, making sure you know, you're integrated in those counties or supporting the local schools or road improvements or whatever else makes you a good citizen that then helps contribute to a healthy work environment. Safety's always been a big part of our culture, so that's, that's part of the S. So just continuing with safety initiatives and um, supporting customers and suppliers to ensure that there's shared business continuity. So getting together with your customers and suppliers, particularly if you're geographically concentrated and saying, what could we do together to support our local community or make sure that our values are aligned? And then that helps promote a strong business relationship, which is good for the financial side. Engaging with stakeholders and open dialogue is also part of this, which is something many of the companies already do. But recognize that 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 is part of this, the listening, the two-way conversation between you and your shareholders, uh, your regulators, and um, that that is part of of the S. And then um, aligning pay incentives with your corporate purpose. You know, we know that one-third of energy companies include some type of ESG metric in their long-term pay compensation. A lot of that is done on an annual basis rather than an actual long-term basis. So taking a fresh look at your compensation structure, even if you already have ESG initiatives to to assure that it promotes whatever your goals are in the S category, um, as well as the E category, because those metrics tend to focus on the E. I mean, there's, there's others in terms of promoting volunteerism and ensuring strict compliance with the law. That's, that's part of S. So I, I bet some of the people asking these questions are already doing several things in the S category that they didn't even realize that they were. Preparedness for a future crisis is, is an S and making sure that your employees are better situated when the next pandemic or other type of crisis comes around is, is also part of the S. Some, str- some, some suggestions there. No, they're great. And I just, you know, I want to say it's it's important to me to get this out there because I think sometimes because, you know, we're pink and we were pink Petro, you know, we're pro-oil, pro-women, right? Anti-alternatives, anti-men. Actually, I think the S is very much about interest and access in our industry. And in fact, Washington agrees. The Department of Energy A bipartisan effort has been kicked off on equity and energy. I've spoken with folks in the Senate and in the House and at the White House and in the DOE. They see equity in energy and equity as in everyone, okay, you know, fair access to energy jobs is absolutely mission critical, hugely critical to our our, uh, nation's security. And they see it as a competitive advantage for America. So I believe in meritocracy. I think we have to have workplaces, right, that promote the right people for the right job. But I also believe that interest and access, accessibility is really important. Most of the research we see is that people of color, women are not necessarily exposed to these opportunities. And on the flip side, you hear leaders say, well, they're not enough right, of a certain type of person, you know, uh, in a leadership category. And that's just wrong. Dan, you're absolutely right. You know, 
everybody is competing in this space. The war for talent is immense. And even outside of oil and gas, we have data that shows that people are not studying to get into, quote unquote, you know, the clean energy side of the house. Nobody wants an energy. Kids want to get into tech. Our mid-careers and our late careers, our experienced hires are leaving the energy sector to go work in the tech sector. I probably get no less than a few calls a month from people who've gone to go work for Facebook or Google. You know, they're retraining our, our, our petroleum engineers. They're retraining the technical talent that we have. So we really need to do something concerted about this. And it needs to be meritocratous and fair. But for companies, you know, if you don't measure it, you, you know, if you're not looking at any of your data or if you're not collecting data, you know, you're, that's definitely a place to start is looking at the population that you're working with, right? And looking at the kinds of things that you, uh, that you talked about, Hillary. But I think it's important that the industry recognizes that S is going to be a big strategic lever. So I think it's, imp- I'm glad that you guys took some time to focus on, on talking about the S because I know that there are a lot of questions about that. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask a question about uh, metrics, ratings providers, best sources for best practices, you know, reporting frameworks. Give us your perspectives on where should we be getting information, right? Where should we be looking to, you know, do we think that there's a framework possible for, for the energy industry? Are there, you know, rankings or ratings providers people should be connected to? And what sources do you you guys use as experts to make your decisions around and your shape your thinking around ESG. Dan, you want to you want to sure. uh, take it take that one? Yeah, this is uh, it's a big issue because there is no consistency in terms of how people measure things and how they report them. Um, the API is looking at this, so industry trade groups are thinking about how to prepare a consistent framework. You know, there's a a group called the Energy ESG Council that's been formed that wants to look at that same thing. You've got rating agencies, S&P, MSCI, Sustainalytics, a number of investors have their own that's proprietary. It's kind of the Wild West for this, Katie, and it's a problem because it's very hard to compare companies to each other and benchmarking is super challenging. And so I think it's going to take a couple years to for folks to coalesce. Interestingly enough, in the oil and gas business in particular, you know, there's a lot of consistency between companies on how things are done, right? You know how to run title. It's just, you know, you run title the same way in a, in a uh, company to company to company. Same thing, safety procedures, et cetera. So we're not there yet. We're going to get there. It's going to take some time. The sources on this, again, it's still kind of the Wild West. There are a number of consultants uh, that do this from, you know, the big McKinsey's and Bain's, et cetera, on down. And so, you know, you can buy expertise in this area. You know, I find, I find very helpful as consolidators of information, you know, some of the big Wall Street banks, Credit Suisse just came out with a, you know, an ESG report. They've got an ESG team now, Morgan Stanley, same story. And so I, I like the big bank research because they're pulling from a lot of different sources and best practices across various industries. So that to me has been a, a good place to learn. And then I think common sense is the other thing because what fits for Shell may not fit for a $100 million market cap public company or a private company. And so I think that there has to be common sense applied to all this as well. So 
I said a lot there, but I don't think there are any great standards. I think that that everybody's got to do, you know, they've got to start start this process a little bit blind. There are consultants and, and you can get expertise. Um, and I like the Wall Street research. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, you know, there's, it's very hard to even decide which of the frameworks you, the company, want to use. I mean, the four most prominent volunteer, I mean, everything in, with a U.S. corporation is voluntary at this point. I'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, for the voluntary regimes, you know, there's the, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the Global Reporting Initiative, CDP, which was the um, Carbon Disclosure Project, um, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Then there's some other CDSB and IR, I, IRC. SASB is probably the one who seems to be sort of pulling out ahead from the rest, just based on recent endorsements from certain asset managers and uh, and investor institutional investors. But they each have sort of a different angle. There is an interesting effort recently by the um, the World Economic Forum to try to set up a um, collaborative, consistent reporting system, global corporate reporting system for sustainability topics, at least, that blends the five main frameworks together. So that's something to keep an eye on, because if that were promoted and adopted by some of the larger international companies, you could start to see, and, and international investors, you could start to see maybe that adopted even by U.S., you know, solely U.S. companies. My view, just my view, is that SASB is the most, is the easiest to understand. It's closest to sort of the materiality threshold that we use under the securities laws and sort of could fit the most easily into public disclosure that U.S. corporations have to make under GAAP or other requirements. But this presents a lot of challenges and a lot of these standards, you know, are industry agnostic. SASB has a few industry sector specific regimes, but, you know, that makes it even harder because I mean, you know, a t-shirt manufacturing company um, with operations in China is going to be different than a Permian-only oil and gas producer. And how are you going to compare the two? And as oil and gas companies compete more and more for capital on an industry agnostic basis, I mean, that's that's another growing trend, then we are being compared to the t-shirt company in China, which is a fictional hypothetical there. But, you know, that the comparability will continue to be more and more of an acute problem for companies as they, um, for energy companies, as they try to access capital and, and use their ESG scores to do that. So it might be helpful for the industry as a whole to work together on a consistent message, consistent standardized system of reporting, an ESG strategy, both during and after this crisis. It could be sort of reactionary in the near term and more permanent in the longer term. But this could be a way before governmental regulation is imposed, which you know we could see if we have. Um, Democrats in the Senate and we have Biden White House is to allow the industry to self-regulate. So I think that it could be in the industry's best interest to work together and come come to agreement on some type of framework for all of that. Thank you, Hillary, for that. And and you know, thank you, Dan. I want to mention that this 
topic is super hot in that uh, we have way more questions and not enough time. So we might have to do this one again. We got some really great feedback that this is a helpful topic to explore, given that it is kind of um, all over the map and folks are looking for uh, solutions. So I want to thank you both. And I also want to thank our audience. And we encourage folks to continue the conversation on the Ally platform. If you don't have a a profile, sign up today, go to pinkpetra.com. So it's four after the hour, and we hope everybody has a good rest of their dry, hopefully in Houston day on Tuesday. Thank you so much, Dan Pickering of Pickering Energy Partners, Hillary Holmes of Gibson Dunn and Petra for being here today. We'll see you guys next time. Everyone have a wonderful day. Thanks, Katie. Thank you.